0: Amen, you may be seated. I trust that, as we <clears throat> praise the Lord and then confess our sins and reminded that we are forgiven, the sins that we have committed, the sins that we will commit, separated from us as far as the east is from the West, and as we walk through the trials and the storms of life, that we can truly say and sing that it is indeed well with our soul. I hope that it is well with your soul this morning. Um, If you are a guest with us, I would invite you to fill out the card that's found inside of your bulletin called the communication card and drop that in the offering box on your way out. I would love to connect with you. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you're new to the Bible, you can find the book of 1 Corinthians in your table of contents. If you don't have a Bible, you can probably find an app on your phone. Speaking of which, can I make a little announcement and a little ask? Um, We want to buy Bibles. Uh, We we are out. We used to have Bibles, and we give them away, and we're out of Bibles. But we don't have a budget for Bibles. So if you would like to give a specific offering uh, toward Bibles, uh, you could just... Uh, either put it in an envelope and mark it or on a check in the memo, write Bibles, and that can directly go to purchasing Bibles uh, for use here on Sundays as well as giving out um, as we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's follow along as I read. Now concerning food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something... He does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so called many gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and through all things exist and for whom all things exist and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat the food as if it's really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is then defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have uh, knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not also be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand. Father, we do ask that you uh, uh, wake up our minds uh, so that we might understand what's being said here in 1 Corinthians 8 and wake up our hearts so that we might receive the conviction from the Holy Spirit and, uh, and be brought into a new, uh, a new understanding of uh, what it means to be faithful to Christ. God, at the end of the day, I ask that we see our Savior, Jesus Christ. That we see that He is one who gave up His life for us so that we might live. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Now, I know what you were thinking as soon as I read verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, you thought to yourself, finally, something that speaks to my life. Like after all of these verses on singleness and on marriage and sex and divorce, and finally we get to something practical. Now I know that uh, at first glance... We might read 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and think to ourselves, what in the world does this mean for us today? I doubt that, uh, that many of you would read this or even, even as I was reading and you think to yourself, man, I was just like hanging out at a temple earlier this week eating meat that was offered to an idol next to a temple prostitute and was having the same question or invited to a pagan friend's house where they were uh, serving a T-bone steak that had just been offered to an idol. These aren't the questions that we face today. And so at first glance, we might think, okay, let's just, let's just skip this chapter and move on, or maybe let's go back to singleness and marriage and divorce and sex, because that's, that's very practical. Now, I think as we dig into this chapter... Uh, not only do I think, I know that there are some massive principles here that are to be applied to the Christian life. And I believe that if we were to just glance over this, we could either ignore it, or we could sort of quickly, uh, carelessly apply it in legalistic ways that aren't really helpful either. And so what I want to do is I want to take some time to look at the context of what was happening, and then I want to talk about some enormous principles that ought to guide each one of our lives. So first, let's talk about the context in which this was written. Corinth was a a city of idols. Uh, To explain this, Baltimore, you could say, is a city that bleeds football, right? So in full disclosure... I'm not a huge Ravens fan. Now, that's only because I'm not a huge football fan, all right? However, well, actually, let me back up. I used to be a football fan until Art Modell stole the Browns (laughs) overnight and brought them to Baltimore. That's another story. We'll talk about that another time. But I stopped following the game in that moment. Um, but here's the deal. I've become a Ravens enthusiast from living here in this city. Meaning you can't live here without getting a little bit of purple on you, right? I mean, think about it like two years ago or a year ago, uh, a little over a year ago when they went to the Super Bowl. Um, the city was purple, all right? Um, people had purple lights in their windows. City Hall. Was lit up in purple lights. The city was literally, you drive in on 395, you're kind of coming in, it was purple. We had a purple city. You would have thought this was like Barney's hometown, right? Everybody's wearing purple. Purple day at my kids' school, my girls are like coming up with dances and songs that they're writing with names like Jacoby Jones and Ray Lewis in the chorus. And so there's this, just simply living here, you become at least a Ravens enthusiast, all right? If not a fan. So I am a proud Ravens enthusiast. And I stand next to each one of you Ravens enthusiasts as well. And I'll stand next to the fans. Um, we could say that Baltimore then bleeds football, and in a sense, uh, kind of exaggerating, but you can't really get through this city without in some way coming across football, right? We, we call it a a, a, a football city. Now, in the same way, Corinth bled idolatry. Like You didn't live a day in Corinth without being faced with purple or idolatry. You didn't live a day in Corinth without being invited to your friend's house, your neighbor's house, where they're serving meat that has been offered to an idol. This is what would happen. A pagan priest would take an animal, and sacrifice the animal to this idol, the portion that was not burned up would then be consumed. So it would be sold in the meat market. So you go to save a lot to buy yourself some ground beef, and you're buying ground beef that was offered to an idol. So you like hamburgers, you have a question to ask yourself now. Uh, your, Your neighbor's house is sharing the meat that they bought uh, you're invited over for dinner. You go to their house, and all of a sudden, you are faced with a question: Do I eat what they're serving me? Because I know that this 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 uh, t-bone was offered to an idol. The 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 festival that you go to it's 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 enjoyable. It's it's a good time, and there they are enjoying the meat that has been offered to an idol. You don't live a Corinthian life without daily being hit with the question of idolatry and how now as a Christian we answer these questions. So a a Corinthian becomes a Christian. They repent of their idolatry. They no longer are worshiping these idols, these fake gods. Now what are they supposed to do? How do you live life in Corinth Uh, without falling into some kind of idolatry. And so now they're writing Paul a good question. What do we do about this meat thing? Because there are people that that have been freed from uh, idolatry. They are freed in the Gospel. And now they're eating the meat uh, that is offered to an idol. They're going to the meat markets and they're buying the meat. Is this right? Can a Christian do this? Is it wrong? Should we not? like Give us some instruction, Paul. And as they're writing this, Paul actually quotes them. You see that right there in verse 1. He says, he quotes the Corinthians, all of us possess knowledge. And so they they evidently were saying, like, we've got the knowledge. Like, we, we know that Jesus is real. These gods are fake. And so after a quick word of this knowledge leading to pride, which we'll talk about in a little bit, In verse 4, he he affirms what they know. He says, this is the stuff that we know. I agree. He says, look at verse 4. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there might be so-called gods in heaven and on on earth, as indeed there are many gods, quote-unquote, many lords, yet for us there is only one God. And so he's affirming them. He's like, look, we get it. I know what you're talking about. We do have this knowledge that these idols are fake. They have zero power. There's nothing there. And there's only one God, and that is the Father. There's only one Lord and Master of all, and that is not the idol. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. And then he goes on and makes this massive statement. He says, this, this one God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, look what he says about them, from whom all things exist and for whom we exist. The Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things exist and through whom we exist. He's saying this. He's saying, look, this is what we know. We know that these gods are fake. That there is nothing there. There, there, there is absolutely zero power in these gods. There is one God, and that is the Father. There is one Lord, and that is the Jesus Christ. And guess what? The meat that was offered to the idol that they're selling in the meat markets, we know that that meat is from God. Not from an idol. We know that that meat can be eaten to the glory of God as a gift from God, not to the idol. We know that that meat has come through the the. the, 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 the the kingship of Jesus Christ, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. It is on our plate because Jesus is king and we can eat this meat freely in worship of King Jesus. And so while your friends now are inviting you over to their house, your neighbors believe that as they're eating this meat, they're doing this as an act of worship to the idol, you can sit there and eat the exact same meat and counter-culturally say, this is to the glory of God. Thank you, God, for this meat. You can go to the festival and you can eat the meat. You can go to the market and you can buy yourself a slab of steak, if that's your thing, and you can eat it to the glory of God because it is God that brought us all things. All good gifts are from God and are to be eaten to his glory. So he's saying this is what we know, all right? We're on the same page. All of us possess this knowledge. We get it. But the big big question is this. Is uh, your enjoyment of your freedom the end of Christian discipleship? meaning you are freed now, Corinthians, to eat this meat, is now eating the meat the goal of your Christian discipleship? Is this, is this what God saved you for so you could enjoy this steak to His glory? In America, we idolize not just our American idols. We idolize our rights themselves, don't we? We idolize our rights, whether we are fighting for our right to life or our right to affordable housing or our right to health care or our right to marriage or our right to bear arms or maybe you're just fighting for your right to party. We are fighting for our rights and we literally make idols out of our rights. This is my freedom. And because it's my freedom, I ought to be able to do it and I should do it. Now, unfortunately the church often follows the same kind of thinking. So in the church, then, we idolize our freedoms, meaning if I can, that means we should. Or, or think of it this way. Uh, God has freed me in a sense. I know that I can eat this meat to the glory of God, and so in order to show that I believe the gospel, then I should, I must eat this meat. If I don't eat the meat, then it's as if I don't believe the gospel. I don't believe that God has given all things for his, uh, as, as good gifts. And so as Christians, we often idolize our own rights. And we say, you can, you can challenge anything. You can talk about my sin issues, but don't tell me I can't do something. Don't take away something that is a, a, a freedom. Now, some things that we just, we don't have a right, we, we never have a right to sin. We never have a right to do anything that goes against the Scriptures. But there are many, many areas of our Christian lives that we, have been, that we are free to, we have, we have freedom to spend money at the mall, to, to eat a hamburger, to, to, to drink a glass of wine, whatever that might be. Um, don't, don't ever uh, get, get too close t- to my rights. Is enjoying our freedoms the end of Christian discipleship, the goal of what it means to be a Christian. And so in this world then today of idolizing our, our rights, this is a very important question to ask. So here's what's happening uh, in, in, in the Corinthian church. And here's the goal that I, I want to I, I get to. This is, this is where we're trying to go. Um, <clears throat> more than enjoying your freedoms and your rights. Um, you, as an individual Christian, are responsible to help your brother or sister in Christ, another Christian, grow closer to Jesus. Amen. Now, this is a uh, like a countercultural, just mind shifting thought. You are not just responsible for your own spiritual well being. But you are responsible to help other Christians grow closer to Jesus. That's sort of the big principle that we're going to walk away with from here. All right. So in order to do that, look what was happening here in the church in Corinth. In verses 7 and 8, Paul first uh, says that your rights are causing your brother to, to, to sin. Look at verses 7 through 10. He says, however, not everybody possesses this knowledge. So, so you get it. Like We're on the same page. Not everybody gets that. You see what I'm saying? Not everybody understands what we understand about this whole meat thing. But some, he says, through former association with idols, they eat the food as if it's really offered to the idol. And their conscience being weak is now defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we eat. No better off if we do. Is meaning, meaning it's... Food, meat, it's just meat. Like I know the sirloin tastes good, but at the end of the day, Paul's saying, it's just meat. So you're no closer to Jesus if you eat the meat, and if you don't eat it, you're no closer to Jesus. It's, a, it's, 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 uh, it's morally neutral, all right? But what's not more morally neutral is this. He says, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anybody sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat the food that is offered to the idols? And remember, this is somebody who is now eating as to the idol. Do you see what he's getting at here? So this is an issue not of... um, not of legalism, all right? So often we carelessly apply this as Christian legalists, all right? You're self-righteous about something. And, and, and you find something to be distasteful. And you think somebody is lesser than because they are participating in this distasteful practice. And so you apply this and you say, hey, um, buddy, your distasteful practice offends me. I don't like watching you drink that glass of wine. I think that's, I think that's just gross. I think it's morally uh, destructive. And you're offending me, so you need to stop. And then this self-righteous Christian gets with their other self-righteous Christian friends and while they're drinking their sparkling grape juice. <laughs> I hope I'm not offending. Um, uh, secretly, in their, in their mind, they, they, they uh, talk about and they, they lift themselves up as morally superior to those weaker people who cannot abstain. Do you see what Paul's doing? Paul's actually saying it's the reverse. Paul's saying the one who... Um, The one who can't is the weaker, brother. What he's saying is this: This isn't about self-righteous legalism. This isn't about holding uh, your 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 own preferences over other people and saying, uh, you know, this this is the way I see it. And so, therefore, Paul is saying this: This is about idolatry. This is about falling away from Jesus. The, the 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 example he's giving is a dude who used to be an idol worshiper. They are used to then eating meat uh, as worship of this idol. So they go to these pagan festivals and it's not just eating meat to the glory of God. They're invited to their neighbor's house and they're not eating to the glory of God. They see you buying in the meat market and this is what they think. They think, oh, so a Christian can worship God, the Father, and... Worship these idols as well. You're confusing them, he's saying. This is a person who's weak in their faith and they are easily drawn back into idol worship. And so this is somebody then who as a result of you carelessly flaunting your freedoms in front of them and eating meat in front of them, you are drawing them in. You're doing it to the glory of God. They are now doing it to the glory of the idol. And friends, you're drawing them away from Christ. Paul says that the problem right now that's happening in the Corinthian church is you are carelessly flaunting your freedoms. And there are those who are being sucked back into idol worship because they don't know. They don't understand. The second thing he's saying is this. He's saying that their sinning is your responsibility. Look at verse 11. So by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Listen to the, that tender sort of description of the weaker brother. This isn't some legalistic self-righteousness. This is the weaker brother for whom Christ died. This is someone that Christ died for. The blood of Christ has been applied to this person's life. This means that at some time in, in, in time past, the father set. His affections on this individual, intimately loved this individual. The, the son gave up his rights, brought, come, came into this world to die for this individual. His blood was poured out, particularly for the sins of this individual. The Holy Spirit came and opened his eyes to, to, the, to the faith and, and brought him into the family of God. This is someone who God intimately loves. And here you are flaunting your rights. He's saying you are responsible for their sin. Sure, God is going to hold them accountable for their idolatry. He's also going to, be to hold you accountable for your carelessness in stewarding this relationship. This is, this is strange for us today. Because we think often of going to church in the same way that we think of going to the YMCA. When I... Go to the YMCA. I, I'm not responsible for the other people that work out there. Uh, frankly, they could drift off. Maybe the, somebody somebody that's there they, they want to get bulked up. They want to get muscular, and they're lazy and they stop coming, and they end up looking like me, wasting away to nothing. All right. <laughs> um, and you're not responsible for that guy. All right. You got your own individual membership. Not so in the church. The church is like no other organization. Listen, everybody look around at one another really quick. Just look around at those sitting around you. All right, these are people that God has, uh, for, for whatever reason, placed near you today. All right? These are fellow church members that God has brought you into covenant with. What this means is God doesn't do things randomly. God doesn't place me in your life and you in my life randomly. This is what it means. It means that we are stewards of the relationship that God has given us. The question is this, are we stewarding these relationships well? And if we are leading one another, if we don't think of it in terms of this this big principle that we are responsible, that this brother or sister grows in Jesus, and, and we don't steward that well, friends, we are responsible for leading them into sin. And then Paul uh, shows how it's even more severe than that. Look at the next verse in verse 12. He says, Thus, sinning against your, uh, uh, your, your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against whom? Christ. This is not a sin just against your brother. He says this is a sin against Christ. Christ. This is someone for whom Christ died. You have been stewarded this relationship. God has placed you in, or placed them in your life for a reason. And you are being careless with the purchases of God. You are being careless with the body of Christ. So he's saying, at the end of the day, this isn't just an issue with that person. It's not an issue with their lack of knowledge. This isn't a sin against them. You're actually sinning against Jesus Christ himself through leading this brother back into idolatry. Now, while eating meat offered to idols... Isn't really our issue today. Honestly, I'd be shocked if some of, somebody afterward came up and said, Man, that was so applicable <laughs> to my life. Like, I've been daily. My wife, she loves to cook these hamburgers, and I don't know what to do. Meat offered. I recognize this isn't the most uh, <clears throat> applicable uh, chapter at face value, but aren't we beginning to see some principles here that actually do guide our lives? And the big principle is this, you are actually responsible for the brother sitting next to you, the sister sitting next to you, that they live like Jesus, that they grow in their faith with Christ. Now, how does this look? Let's, get, let's put some meat to this. How might we apply this principle to our lives? First, I'm going to give you three different ways to, to apply it. First, a Christian is marked not by knowledge, but a Christian is marked by humility. Kirsty actually, uh, Kirsty Schraffenberger, she put on Facebook last night an, an article uh, that I was like, oh, wow, this is exactly what I'm preaching on. Um, it was about uh, arrogance and being puffed up. Uh, the author of the article said, the practical application of your love is just as important as the theology behind it. Our faith is evidenced by how we treat others. Look back at verse one with me really quick. He says that there is a knowledge that puffs up. And this knowledge that you have is puffing you up, meaning it's leading you to pride, pride, Knowledge without love is ignorance in the Christian life. Charles Spurgeon once once said that Satan has a strategy for every Christian at every stage of their Christian life. Meaning we never get beyond uh, the strategies and the wiles of the devil. So for example, if you are somebody who is drawn to idolatry. Satan is going to tempt you with that meat so that you might eat that meat and be drawn back into idolatry. Or you're someone who's drawn towards sensuality and and Satan tempts you with with flesh and he tempts you with with, uh, intimacy that is is, uh, far beyond God's uh, design for your life and you're being drawn into a world of sensuality. But maybe you're somebody who is knowledgeable. Maybe you're somebody that can eat the meat. You're somebody that has grown. You have a, you have, you have a, very, uh, a very complex and very big uh, understanding of, of who God is. Do you believe that you're now beyond Satan's use? You're beyond Satan's attack? No, Satan will now begin to attack you with confidence. He'll begin to attack you with pride. What makes Christians different than the rest of the world? Is it the way we love? Well, not really. Because might non Unbelieving friends, they, they, they love their families. Is it our commitment, we, we, the fact that we come to the same gathering every week? No, because the unbelieving world is committed to various things. What makes us different? Is it our morals? Guys, I know some non-Christians that are definitely more moral than some of you guys are, right? <laughs> what makes us different? And it's this, it's humility. Humility. You see, what the the unbelieving world does not have is the acknowledgement that they deserve the wrath of God. I don't have one unbelieving friend who believes that they are a sinner that deserves hell. And if it were not for the grace of God. You see, this is the starting point of our knowledge. How can we then begin there, sinner deserving hell, Grace of God receiving the gospel. Not, not something I did, but something I heard and believed and received and then be led to pride. And you know how this, this, this works. You, uh, you, you learn something new theologically or maybe there was something you thought was a sin. You find out, oh, it's not a sin. I can, I can partake. And uh, ten minutes later, you bump into a friend who believes the way you did 11 minutes ago. And you say, are you kidding me? You don't know this? I've known this for ten minutes. This is ridiculous. Pride. Knowledge. there's, There's a knowledge that puffs up. So first, we are marked not by our knowledge, but Christians are marked by our humility. So we are to be humble. Second way to apply this principle is this. Your rights are never more important than the other Christian's faith. Alright? Your rights, your freedoms in Christ are never more important to you than your brother or sister and their walk with Jesus. Look at verse 13. Paul says this. He concludes, he says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, I imagine Paul being someone that loves a filet mignon, right? Like somebody that really just like, um, you know, uh, what is it, Morton's Steakhouse. He's Dropping serious quan, at Morton's Steak. and uh, and then he he comes to this realization. Wait a second, um, it's possible that eating with this brother will lead them back into idolatry. And Paul says this: I won't I won't eat filet mignon again in my life. If it means that my brother will remain and abide in Christ. You see our rights our freedoms in Christ the things that we enjoy are never more important than what God is doing in the life of our brother and sister. Do you see how Paul is like again elevating us from this horizontal and moving us to the vertical? He's saying stop focusing on this world. Stop focusing on the meat that you're eating now knowing that you're going to have a better meat later when Christ is serving it himself. And so your rights and your freedoms now are never more important than your fellow Christians' faith. A few ways that we can apply this. And let me say this before I apply this and give some examples. I almost hesitated. I'm still not sure if I'm going to follow through with this. I hesitate giving you some examples because I don't want this to become legalistic and this is so broad. Like there are probably examples that I won't even think of that you might be confronted with this afternoon. All right? But let me give you some examples. I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. All right. Shopping can be an idol for some, right? So you might say, Joel, we don't have idols today. This is, well, we don't have idols explicitly. Like we don't, we're not going and bowing down to something. But we have idols in the sense that we find we make gods out of out of things, out of stuff, out of activities. We it it, it lifts our mind out of our worries and, and we've become attached to it for our Hope in life, all right? Some make an idol out of shopping. Now imagine your friend does or has. Um, let's, let's say that for you, you can shop to the glory of God. You can go to the mall. Uh, you've saved your money. You've done well. You set aside, you've budgeted. You've set aside and you've got some money and you can spend it truly and you can spend it truly to the glory of God. And you can buy these things as God's provision for you. Every good gift comes from above. You get that. We know this, all right? But your friend doesn't see it that way. For your friend, shopping has always been an idol. For your friend, shopping has been something that is a god. Like I shop not because every good gift comes from above, but I shop because I don't feel like I have any good gifts from above. And I shop because this is the only time I ever feel happy is when I'm buying something new to wear. Now, is it love for you to exercise your right that Saturday morning, and call your friend and say, do you want to go shopping with me? When you know this, and leading them back into their idolatry away from God. Jess and I had a roommate some time ago who, uh, for them, drinking alcohol was a way to cope with problems, to become intoxicated was a way to sort of get by with the mundane realities of, of life. And after some time, my wife led the way in this and she, she said, we've, we, we need to uh, uh, be an alcohol-free house for this season. And so while this person stayed with us, we became an alcohol-free house. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Um, a good dark beer is a gift from God, <laughs> but it is a right that, that, that we must be willing to sacrifice if it's going to lead our brother back into idolatry, back into addiction. Uh, I'll give you some more examples. You might be able to go to the, go to the club and dance, all right? It might be something you can do. So you're out there dancing to the glory of God, all right? <laughs> Like, you don't want to kind of get freaky with the girl that's dancing over there or whatever. Like, it's just for you. It's just you and Jesus <laughs> dancing to the glory, glory of God. We might need to edit this sermon a little bit. Um, and, uh, but you have a friend who's drawn toward hedonism. So your friend, with, for them, the club has always been something that just, it's an escape, and, and they like to get get in, uh, in, intoxicated, uh, cocaine has been an issue as they've been in the club in the past to take the edge off, um, they find themselves hooking up with people afterwards, they've, they've, that was sort of their life for years. Now, are you loving your brother or sister when you bring them to enjoy what you can do freely And six months later, they are now living once again a life of hedonism, every weekend at the club, hanging out, getting wasted, hooking up. Paul says, you are responsible for your brother's sin. Lust is a problem for many. You might have a a, a friend who's made it clear that Lust has been such a battle for him; he can't take any form of nudity whatsoever. Now you're somebody that enjoys going to the art museum. For you, you can look at a painting of some Victorian nudes, and it's, it, it, you have a freedom there. It, it, it doesn't affect you. You can actually uh, uh, do so to the glory of God and seeing you know the great painting that this dude put together. Um, uh, Are you loving your friend if that Friday night you say, hey, I'm planning on going to the museum and you carelessly bring him along with you and he views these same uh, uh, paintings that you view and it causes him to stumble and to fall back into an addiction uh, with lust. Or... (coughs) Maybe you're someone who can smoke a cigar to the glory of God. And your friend, uh, let's say a friend from church, a brother in Christ, has had a life, uh, an adult lifelong addiction to nicotine. And it's destroying his body. For him, it, this has become truly an idol in his life. And he's hanging out at your house one warm, sunny Saturday afternoon and you would like to smoke a cigar to the glory of God. But you give up your right. You give up your freedom out of love for your brother because you do not want to contribute to your brother falling back into his addiction and into his idolatry. Now, You see why I hesitated giving some examples, right? Take them for what they are. Mere examples. But here's the point. This is about love, isn't it? This is about love. This is about whether or not we are more concerned with what we want and what we like and what we are free to enjoy and we are now more concerned about our brother or sister in Christ. We are about love. Love here. Now lastly, what Paul is saying here as we apply this is that we are driven by true knowledge. So there is a knowledge, he says, a kind of knowledge that puffs up. We're not driven by that knowledge. We're driven by a true knowledge. Matthew Henry said that there is no proof of ignorance more common than the conceit of knowledge. Now, today it's very popular in evangelical Christian circles to say to to sort of pit knowledge and love against each other. To say, that guy, he has a lot of head knowledge, like he's got right doctrine, he's got it all together, but he has no heart knowledge. That's popular today. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is actually saying no. If, the, if, if love is not uh, uh, characterizing this man's life, it's not that he has too much knowledge. It's not because he went to seminary and got a degree. It's not because he studies a lot and reads a lot of books. It's because he actually has insufficient knowledge. His doctrine is actually bad. He doesn't have right knowledge. He doesn't have right thinking. Because what, what happens here, and what Paul is saying, is right knowledge always leads to right behavior. It always leads to love. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, if anybody imagines that he knows something, by the way, it's just bad if you're imagining that you know something. We'll just leave that right there. (laughs) If anybody imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anybody loves God, he is known by God. The issue here is what our knowledge is, whether or not it's true knowledge. True knowledge is this. It's intimate knowledge of God and God's intimate knowledge of you. Not the kind of knowledge uh, that just simply spews facts as, as maybe one husband would just spew facts about his wife and say that he knows. No, that's not the case. A husband and wife have knowledge. They have facts, yes, but they have intimate knowledge of one another. In the same way, knowledge of God is an intimacy. It's knowing God. It's knowing the heart of God. It's knowing who God loves, and it's being known by God. Now, this means that doctrine is extremely important because we have to know the biblical God, not just the God of our imagination. There's nothing more detrimental to, to the Christian faith than to be in like a small group and you're, you're, study, or, uh, you're talking and you do this and you're like, now let's talk about who God is. And you go around, I, I imagine God to be dot, dot, dot. I think God is like, you know when I think of God? I think God... No. No. <laughs> Doctrine is important. Knowing the biblical God. And it leads us to right living. Because the biblical God is the creator God who was eternally righteous, who gave the law to show us that we needed a savior. The biblical God at some time past determined to save you. And he sent his son into this world who is the divine son, Through whom all things exist. And this son, though he uh, was with God, he was equal with God, he was sitting at the right hand of God, saw it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself nothing, took on the form of a servant, and being now found in the likeness of a man, went to his death the death on a cross the wrath of God that was rolling in for your sin, the sin of your heart that only you know about. That wrath was hit by the cross of Jesus Christ. And God in His mercy and in His love placed His judgment for you onto the cross. And Christ absorbed every bit of that so that you might live. Don't you see what the biblical God has done? Don't you see who the biblical God is? The biblical God is a Christ who gave up His rights. Who gave up all of His rights so that you might live. He gave up all of His rights so that you may be drawn into the family. So that you might be gently brought home to glory. This is the Christ who then said, the greatest commandment is that you love God and the second is like it. That you what? That you love your neighbor as yourself. And that same Christ said, you know what, it would be better for you to be drowned by an anchor in the inner harbor than to allow one of these little weak ones to stumble in their faith. Tale of two Christians. One guy becomes a Christian, receives the gospel, understands the grace of Jesus Christ, is brought to, to uh, uh, a knowledge of who God is. Then he begins to understand the freedoms that he has in Christ. And for him, his life now becomes about enjoying his freedoms in Christ. Ten minutes later, he's he's, uh, arrogantly making somebody feel stupid for not believing what he learned ten minutes before. he, He becomes puffed up. He's a puffy Christian. Prideful, arrogant. And he destroys those around him. Another Christian, she too understands the grace of Christ in Jesus Christ, taking the wrath of God, forgiving her of her sins, she becomes a Christian. And now driven by that same kind of love, she now begins to lay down her rights, lay down her freedoms, so that others might grow in their faith and become closer to Jesus. How does she do this? One, she does this just simply through showing up to church. I mean, you can't know your brothers and sisters unless you are together, unless we see one another. Two, humility. She says, you know what? There, there is nothing in my doctrine that would give me an opportunity to boast in my salvation. And she is marked by humility and love. Third, she sacrifices any right every time she feels that it might destroy her brother or sister who is weaker. And lastly, she is driven by love for Christ. She knows God intimately. She knows that God knows her intimately, and this leads her to love those whom God loves. And there is no greater love than the love of a man who lays down his life for his brother. There is no greater love than the love that Christ has for you. The friend that sticks closer than a brother. The Christ who literally laid down his life so that you might be able to get up, rise out of that dungeon, and live in freedom. Do you know that love? Are you driven by the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you driven by, uh, by, uh, uh, by, by this, this wonderful, beautiful story of a God who gave everything for you? Turn to Him. Look to Him. Receive that grace that is offered to you so that you may now love your neighbor. So that you might now lay down your life your brother. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to be in the Word. Once again, we thank you for this letter of Corinthians, uh, this, this passage that uh, uh, leaves us with just a number of principles that ought to guide our faith. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.